All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Hope everyone's feeling good. Nice and cold. We are going to get some freezing rain tonight, so I hope you're all ready for that. It's going to be a good time. Careful on your drive tomorrow. All right. So now this morning we come to question 39 in our larger catechism, and we get to look at the other side of the uh, coin here, the requirement of our mediator to be man. And I think this one is going to be a little bit more familiar to us uh, when we speak of Christ's mediatorial role um, and the things that we're familiar with. It's usually his human responsibilities that we're speaking about, um, and you'll see what I mean here. Uh, but before we dive into this, let me open us up in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are indeed um, good and majestic and sovereign over all. We praise you. We thank you for your Son, who is indeed our mediator, who is both God and man. And we look forward to examining just that this morning. We pray that you would be with us through your spirit as we learn more of you, our great God and King. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, as usual, I will read the question. Let's respond together with the answer in unison. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Excellent. So, now as, as you probably noticed, this question is broken down into kind of two main parts. Uh, why our mediator has to be a man and then really kind of the consequences of that. So uh, we're going to start by looking at the why aspect of this. And our catechism lists several reasons here. But before we do, uh, I want to start with, I think, an important question. Can God do anything? Okay. I want us to keep this question in mind as we unpack our catechism answer. And I think it's an important question. Something that we need to preface this with, question 39. Can God do anything? <clears throat> and the answer to this question is no. Or at least a qualified no. Okay? <clears throat> now, I know you know, you all know your Bibles very well. And you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our God is in the heavens. And He does all that He pleases. Right? Psalm 115.3. What do you say to that? I say, let's flesh that out a bit. Huh? First of all, as it relates to our catechism answer, okay, we absolutely need our mediator to be man. Okay? Well, duh, Travis, it says that in the answer. I don't need you to tell me that. Okay? What I mean is the implication of that statement okay, is that there are certain things that God, as the mediator, couldn't do. Okay, whoa, wait a minute, that feels a little like heresy. No, it's not. It's going to be okay. You ever had somebody ask you that question? Okay, could God ever create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Okay, and the question is phrased that way, it's phrased in such a way that it's meant to be a trap, right? Because the idea is that if you say yes, you're calling into question God's omnipotence, right? There's now a force or a power that's greater than God, right? I.e. this rock, which if that's true, in fact, that would mean that the rock is now God. 
<clears throat> but if you say no, now you're admitting that there are things that God can't do. But is that wrong? Is that a bad thing? Right? We said before that God does all that he pleases, right? Can God sin? Nope. Right? Does God change? No. Right? Does it please him to do any of those things? No. Right? It only pleases God to do what is good, holy, righteous, just. Right? So there are several things we are comfortable saying God cannot do. Okay? And it's not that God does not do them, although it is true. It's that he cannot do them because it goes against his nature. And by the way, just from an apologetic standpoint, okay, a better way to state that previous question is to say that any rock God creates, he can lift. Okay? It's just a more positive way to say that statement. Okay. So anyway, let's take this same logic and apply it to our question. Okay? Our catechism says our mediator must be man because he advances our nature, performs obedience to the law, suffers and makes intercession for us in our nature, and feels our infirmities. I would argue that God alone cannot perform these required tasks as a mediator. Why? Well, because they go against his nature. Okay, not, not in a sinful way, mind you, but God is a spirit, right? And a spirit cannot do these things apart from John 1.14, becoming flesh and tabernacling among us. Okay, so the argument I want to make here is that we do indeed need our mediator to be a man, simply because our God, who is a spirit, cannot suffer in our nature. A perfect holy spiritual being cannot suffer in our nature. He cannot feel our infirmities. And that's a nice segue into our first requirement here. The mediator must be man in order that he might advance our nature. Okay? Just as how God alone could not be our mediator, we must also say that our mediator had to be a man. In other words, it could not have been angels, couldn't have been animals, right, or any other created being. Okay? Hebrews 2.16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. No other creature apart from one that shares our human nature is qualified to be the second Adam, right, and undo the wrongs of the first Adam. The very definition of a mediator is to be a member of the group that you're interceding for. <clears throat> so our mediator must be a member of the human race. I mean, that's even true even in our common institutions, right? That's standard practice. I mean, think about it. Would it, would it ever make sense for a military officer to be in rank and not be a member of the military? I mean, for example, would it, be, it would be really weird to have a, a colonel, right, in the Air Force giving orders to his subordinates if he wasn't also a member of the Air Force. I mean, that just wouldn't make any sense. Or, in the same token, like, trying to speak on behalf of his subordinates to a general, and he's not in the Air Force. It just wouldn't make sense. He has to be a member of the Air Force to hold rank, Okay. Christ could not be a redeemer of the human race unless he was first a member of the human race. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In other words, man brought sin into this world. Redemption must come also partly through man. Now, how does, this, how does all this mean that Christ advances our nature? Well, listen to 2 Peter 1, 4. By which he, 
God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So God has granted believers these precious and great promises. And it's through these promises that they become partakers of his divine nature. So is, is Peter saying that we become partakers or we become uh, part of God in some way? No, no, that's not what he's saying. Rather, amazingly, we share in God's nature and we become more like him. And how, how do we acquire this shared nature? Well, the text says that we do it through God's promises. Well, that raises the question, what are these great promises? Well, I love how the text categorizes them. These, these, are, these are precious. These are very great promises. They're promises that fuel hope. They're more precious than gold because they come from the mouth of the Lord. Right? They're unbreakable, glorious promises. So these promises are included, uh, promises that Peter identified in his Pentecost sermon. Right from Acts 2, chief among them would be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it also includes promises such as likeness to God in the text that we just read. Christ's return, 2 Peter 3, 4. Eternal life in heaven, 1 Peter 1, 4. And all the promises in Scripture that relate to new life. And so through Christ, He is able to advance our nature in this way. Precisely because He is able to secure all of these promises on our behalf. And he represents in himself this perfect human nature. Now, our second requirement is that our human mediator would perform obedience to the law. Now, a, a generic obedience is not sufficient, right? I mean, even, even we obey the law sometimes, right? But that's, that's not enough. No, mankind needs a mediator who kept the law perfectly, both internally and and externally. That's precisely what Christ did. From his birth, we read, uh, yeah, we read in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this text is important because it tells us at a, at a providential moment in redemptive history, God did three things, right? He sent his son, to be our mediator, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, so he's now required to become a man, and he's born under the law, which means he is now required to obey that law. Now, it's important we understand that God himself is not under the law. Okay? God is not under the law. He is the law giver. Okay? But Jesus Christ had to be truly human so that he could be truly under the law of God and succeed where Adam failed. Okay? This is why I, I drug you through all that covenant theology. Okay? Adam and all his posterity broke the law of God, and he lived in violation of that law. But where the first Adam fails, the second Adam succeeds, and he meets the requirements of the covenant of works, namely the perfect obedience to the law of God. Right? Listen to Romans 5.19. <clears throat> For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The sad reality is that although Christ keeps the covenant of works in his obedience to the law perfectly, he pays the penalty of that covenant, right? Death for you, his people. You know, a lot, a lot of people always ask, well, why didn't God 
kill Adam like he said he would in the garden. Why didn't he just kill him? Well, he certainly would have been justified in doing that, right? The answer is that Adam gets mercy and Jesus gets the penalty. Adam gets grace. And that's, that's really the gospel in a nutshell, right? The lawbreaker gets mercy while the lawkeeper gets wrath. So repent and believe, right? Now, before we leave this requirement, I want to speak more on the, on the, the law for a moment. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me, please, to Matthew 5. And I'll have you know, I showed a lot of restraint in not talking about theonomy here, but we're going to sidestep that topic today. Matthew 5. <clears throat> Starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I, I want us to walk through this text and look at Christ's work here. Okay, Verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Okay, now, point of clarification here. When Jesus says the law, right, he's talking about the Torah first five books of the Bible, and when he says the prophets, right, he's, he really is talking about the rest of the Old Testament, the law, or the uh, prophets and the writings. Um, he does this, he uses this kind of language in other places, uh, right, like Matthew seven twelve. so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, okay, it's the Old Testament. So, in other words, uh, all the Word of God speaks the truth, okay, and uh, in the case of Matthew 5, what, uh, what is Jesus saying? Well, that he didn't come to do away with the Old Testament law, okay? He came to fulfill it. How did he do that? Well, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law in several ways. Uh, chief among it is that it all points to him, right? Both in its specific messianic predictions and in its sacrificial system, okay? Um, he does it in the fact that the many events in the history of Israel uh, foreshadow the Son of God. The laws... Um, uh, he had to perfectly obey them, which, of course, he did. Uh, the wisdom literature sets forth a behavior pattern, which he perfectly exemplified in his life. Okay? So Jesus' life and ministry does not replace the Old Testament. Okay? Rather, it perfectly fulfills it in our behalf. And not only that, but through his teaching, we provided clarity and the intent behind God's meaning in the entire Old Testament. Okay. Verse 18, Jesus confirms the full authority of the Old Testament as Scripture and the importance of the law for all time. Okay. He says, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So an iota is the smallest uh, Greek letter of the alphabet or a, or a yod in the Hebrew. Okay. And the dot, it likely refers to a tiny uh, stroke or pen mark uh, that was used to differentiate between the Hebrew letters. 
Okay, the point is not even the smallest stroke of a pen will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay? One commentary put it this way. I like this. <clears throat> the Old Testament remains an authoritative compendium of divine testimony and teaching within which some elements, such as sacrifices and other ceremonial laws, predicted or foreshadowed events that would be accomplished in Jesus' ministry and so are not now models for Christian behavior. So I like how this commentary claimed the Old Testament as authoritative, okay, profitable for teaching, and only excluded the ceremonial laws as accomplished in Christ. <coughs> Confessional theonomy. <coughs> now, what does that phrase, until all is accomplished, mean? Okay. Didn't, didn't Jesus accomplish everything that he set out to do? Well, yes, he did in his first coming. This phrase points to Jesus' fulfillment of specific Old Testament hopes. Okay, partly through his earthly life, death, and resurrection. But it will be perfectly completed at his second coming. Okay, look at verse 19. <clears throat> Therefore, verse 19 says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So these commandments refers to all the commandments in the Old Testament. Okay. Although some will be applied differently once their purpose has been fulfilled in Christ, the Old Testament commandments are good. Okay. They are profitable. They should be taught. Dare I say enforced. <clears throat> they come from God. Okay. Now, when Jesus says least of these commandments, okay, you need to understand that the rabbis recognize the distinction between light and weighty commandments. Okay. A light commandment might be something like uh, tithing your garden produce. Okay, a weighty commandment would be something like murder or idolatry. Okay? And Jesus demands a commitment to both the least and the greatest, which is indeed what he does as our mediator. The entire Old Testament is an expression of God's will and taught according to Jesus' interpretation. So, let's move on to our next requirement in the Catechism. Our mediator must be man in order that he might suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. Now, I would say, it's not an exaggeration to say nearly every word in this phrase is important, okay? It's almost like the divines knew what they were doing when they wrote this. Okay, so let's look at uh, this element of suffering. Two things I want to draw to your attention here. God himself, in his own nature, cannot suffer, okay? God certainly has knowledge of human suffering, okay? And he has pity and compassion on us uh, as his creation and adopted children, okay? So we may say that God has sympathy, okay? But he does not sympathize. Now, some of you might be thinking, Travis, you're just splitting hairs. It's just semantics, okay? Well, no, it's really not. Um, and words really do matter here. This is important, okay? The word sympathize literally means to suffer with someone, Okay? God is an infinite being, and if God suffered or if God sympathized with us in that way, okay, it would imply some kind of limitation and change on his part. Okay, therefore, God cannot suffer or truly sympathize with us in that regard. Again, he can have sympathy, but he cannot sympathize. 
I would caution you not to speak carelessly about God in this way because to do so would imply a change in God's nature. Okay? All this to say, the only way God could experience our human suffering is by taking on a human nature himself. Right? The very way he did in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's another reason our mediator was required to be human as it relates to suffering. Right? It was required of Christ's priesthood. So, we've already established that God cannot sympathize with his people in that way. However, this duty is required of a priest. Voss said it like this in his commentary on the confession. He said, A true priest, according to God's appointment, must be chosen from among men and must be able to sympathize with the sufferings and troubles of human beings because he has experienced suffering and trouble himself. And Jesus is the great high priest, right? So this should be surely true of him as well, right? Well, let's see if Voss is right. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. Look at the first two verses. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, keep in mind, these verses don't speak specifically about Christ. Okay? They're just talking about the roles and responsibility of a high priest. But since Jesus was to be the great high priest, right, he had to meet these qualifications as well. In his human nature, Jesus was beset with weakness. Right? He was tempted. Right? He certainly knew what it meant to suffer. Okay? If our mediator was not man and sympathized with us in this way, it would have nullified Christ's role as the great high priest. And this speaks directly to the intercession aspect of this requirement that the confession mentions. Our mediator must be man in order that he be our great high priest who makes intercession for us. Flip over to chapter 7 in Hebrews. Starting in verse 23, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him or for them. Sorry. So in verse 23, we start with this idea of the many Levitical priests being contrasted with the eternality of Jesus as the high priest. Right? Jesus is the perfect high priest who is without sin, and therefore he does not die. His sacrifice is perfect and does not need to be represented or re-offered in any way. Therefore, Jesus is the only high priest required for us. And not only uh, can, but must continue in his office. Because okay? there's nobody to succeed him. And that's what verse 24 is getting at. Now, verse 25 is where it starts to get fun. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That phrase, to the uttermost, could actually mean two things in the Greek. It could be talking about a completeness in time, i.e. forever, okay? or a completeness in its extent, i.e. he saves completely. So, which one is it talking about? Does Christ save us forever or does Christ save us completely? 
Yes. Okay? A complete salvation would endure forever. The salvation Jesus gives his people is complete in him, and it lasts forever. And the author intends to include both meanings here. And the text says Jesus saves who? Those who draw near to God through him. So this phrase, this phrase drawing near to God, <clears throat> is routinely used in the book of Hebrews to denote a person approaching God. And this is, of course, only possible when a person's sins have been forgiven through the sacrifice and intercession of the great high priest. In fact, Hebrews 4.16 says we should have confidence as we draw near to God. We should be bold and courageous as we approach God on His throne of grace. That's, that's interesting. Does this sound like words describing sinners approaching a holy and righteous God? I mean, let's be honest. We know who God is. We've read of His awesome presence in the Scriptures. Yeah, it's terrifying to say the least. Approaching this God confidently and boldly is the last thing sinners should be doing. And yet, we do just that. We're able to speak plainly before our Lord, with reverence, of course. <clears throat> but we approach without fear, knowing that we will not incur punishment or shame. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our Savior, our mediator, sits at His right hand, always living, verse 25 says, to make intercession for us. And when we approach the throne of grace in prayer, in prayer we will not perish. Rather, we know that as we give our prayers and supplications to the Lord, He will answer them in accordance with His perfect will. In fact, it pleases Him to do so. Part of Christ making intercession for you means that God the Father will answer the prayers of His Son. And these are the prayers that, that we pray, that we give and pray in Christ's name. These are the things that work together for your good and for His glory. Now just very quickly, the last two points of this part uh, of the catechism answer. <clears throat> Speaking for us and in our nature. Who does Christ do all this saving and interceding for? Well, Hebrews 7.25 says He does it for them. Who's the them? It's those who draw near to God through Him. Those who have faith in Christ. Right? Wait, you mean Jesus didn't die for the whole world? No. Christ died to save and intercede for His people. Right? For those who would draw near to God through Him. Okay? No, all dogs do not go to heaven. As much as I love a good Burt Reynolds movie. Christ came to save people. Mankind. His people. Okay? And he had to do it, as the catechism says, and as we've proven multiple times, he had to do it in our nature. Right? He came for us and in our nature. Now, the last requirement is that our mediator might feel our infirmities. And, and this kind of ties back to the idea of suffering that we've, we've already talked about. Uh, flip, uh, flip back to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. <clears throat> Looking at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it was necessary that our mediator be a man that he might sympathize with us in every regard. Right? Every regard. Not just suffering. 
Okay, Jesus is able to sympathize and identify with his people precisely because he was human. He was man, right? He knew what it was to be tempted, to hunger, to thirst, to have the full range of human emotions from birth to adulthood. Okay? And of course, as we all know, and our text reminds us, he is like us in every way, in every aspect, except without sin. And of course, that's an important qualifier. And this truth gives us a, a lot of comfort in our walk with the Lord because we know that whatever we experience, our Lord experienced as well. And he came out triumphant. He knows what it means to experience everything you do. And more importantly, he knows how to comfort you with the love and the wisdom of the Lord. Now, when it comes to this text, there's always that one smart aleck in the room. Well, um, Jesus didn't have a computer, so uh, he wasn't, you know, like tempted to look at trash on the internet or anything. Or uh, Jesus uh, never had a car, so he wasn't tempted to like speed on the highway or, you know, anything like that. So, or um, Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Okay, <clears throat> so, you know, Jesus wasn't tempted like we are today. First of all, if your goal is to look for the out in this passage, you have totally missed the point. Okay? Second of all, Ezekiel reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. Okay? You could come up with any example you want, and I can show you how it relates to a moral sin common to all men. Okay? No, Jesus didn't have a computer, but I'm sure he was tempted with lust in his heart, as all men are. Right? Sixth commandment, yet he was triumphant. No, Jesus didn't have a car, but I'm sure he was tempted to disobey the local magistrate, right? Particularly when they came to arrest him. Fifth commandment, still the victor. Jesus was tempted like us in every way, faced every temptation, and yet, both internally and externally, won the battle. Never sinned. He knows what it means to be tempted and to be like us. All of this to say, please don't listen to those people. Okay? Your God has lived your life. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses. He knows how you're tempted. And because you are found in Him, you are loved by God, forgiven and redeemed. In fact, that's part of the purpose of all these requirements. Right? The Catechism says that our mediator must be man First, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, you have no idea how hard it was for me not to just plunge into the depths of this doctrine because it is so rich and so wonderful. But, but adoption has its own question that we will get to in due time. So for now, I will restrain myself and we will just hit the highlights. Okay? <clears throat> Let's kick off with this quote from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. I, like, I really like this. <clears throat> if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Well said. Now, I want to talk about uh, four things regarding adoption. First, the theological imperative of sonship. Okay? <clears throat> See, adoption is one of the central benefits of redemption applied. And our Christian life cannot be fully lived, excuse me, unless it is lived in the truth of sonship through union with Christ. 
And sonship is rooted in the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And let's be clear right up front. There is one eternally begotten, infinitely loved Son of God. Amen? Okay. That being said, this sonship is rooted in the Son's covenantal standing that He achieved by accomplishing the work of redemption. Okay. One commentary, I think, summarized it nicely. <clears throat> Though the Son is eternally the Son of God, the Father, according to His humility and redemptive history, He gained a covenantal standing as the adopted Son by accomplishing the work of redemption. Okay. And Psalm 2 gets at that. Okay. A messianic king would achieve the right to be adopted as the covenantal Son of God and head of a new humanity. And Jesus is the eternal Son of God who gained a covenantal status of sonship on account of His saving work. He is the Messianic King, the covenantal head. And what's really cool is that we see two pretty significant Old Testament allusions to this fact. The first of which is Adam. Right? In, G in uh, Jesus' genealogy, Luke calls Adam in, in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, he calls him the Son of God. Why would Luke do this? Because Adam is made in God's image and likeness. And he's created very good. Right? This is why Adam is often referred to as the protological son of God. Okay? This is one of your $5 words for the day. Okay? Proto meaning first. Okay? This is the study of, of theology related to the first things or the origins. Okay? But as we know, Adam marred that image by bringing himself and his posterity into the bondage of sin. Mankind is now a slave to sin rather than a slave to God. And yes, you can and should be both a slave and a son. And we'll talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> Next up is Israel. Listen to God's words in Ezekiel 4. This is verses uh, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, we should all know the Exodus story very well by now, right? Through our study of covenant theology, God has set out to redeem old covenant Israel from their bondage in Egypt. He was forming a covenant people who would function as his corporate, corporate firstborn son. Okay? And this is why Israel is often referred to as the typological or typological son of God. Okay? So it's here that we see more clearly God's plan in redemptive history to turn people back from slaves to sin to sons of God. <clears throat> and he does this by forgiving their sin and restoring his image through his eternal son. And we see here in Exodus 4 the theological concept of how the firstborn is central to the doctrine of adoption. Really, really in two ways. Consecration. Okay, Exodus 13 reminds us that the firstborn was to be consecrated to God from the womb. To consecrate means to, to make something uh, holy by giving it to God, setting it apart. Okay? And here in his interaction with the Pharaoh, it's, this is the climax of God's plague. right? And the second is being an heir. We know that from Deuteronomy 21. The firstborn was to be the heir of the inheritance. right? And God is taking away Pharaoh's natural ability, and really the whole kingdom, to pass on an inheritance at this point. See, both Adam and Old Testament Israel anticipated the coming of Christ, the eternal Son of God, the last Adam and the true Israel. When Jesus came into the world, He fulfilled everything Adam and Israel 
failed to achieve. And that leads us to our New Testament correlation here. This is why it's so important when the author of Hebrews says in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus is the heir of all things, okay, because that means by his life, death, and resurrection, and through faith in him, every believer becomes a firstborn son. And therefore, consecrated unto the Lord, and made heirs to an everlasting promise. Okay, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Start in verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, there is an entire sermon worth of good material here, but there's a couple of critical things that I want us to learn about the doctrine of adoption from this. Number one, the Spirit is the primary agent of adoption, okay, inasmuch as he applies um, or unites believers, rather, to Christ and applies his saving work to them. Okay, number two, we need to have a, a correct balance of the slave-son relationship to God. Okay, let me just say this up front. At the end of the day, <clears throat> I don't want you to assume too much, of a, too much of a slave mentality when it comes to your relationship with God. Okay, now let me qualify that. Don't misunderstand me. You are still a slave to God. You were once a slave to sin, and now you are a slave to God. Okay, you have been bought by God. He purchased you with the blood of His Son. Okay, He is your master and your king. And we respect and we revere our Lord. But that really is the extent of our slave relationship to God. You don't want to push that boundary too far. Okay, if you do, it'll affect how you live, why and how you obey God's commandments. Okay, you will fear the Lord out of what Luther called a, a servile fear. Okay, this is the fear that a prisoner has for a jailer or, or a servant has for a, 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 a harsh or violent master. Okay, you keep God's word out of uh, fear of the whip rather than out of a love for him. Okay, and that's, that's why you should do it, Right? What Luther, you fear the Lord out of what Luther called a filial fear. Okay? We fear the Lord as a child would his father. Out of love and respect. We want to please the Lord. It's not anxiety or because we're scared of him. Right? All this to say we are both slaves and sons of God. It's a both and. Okay? We were all once slaves to sin and of our father the devil. Born into the wrong family. But now... Through Christ, we are slaves to righteousness, Romans 6.18, and sons of the living God, Romans 9.26, okay? So just make sure you have a, a healthy balance of the two, okay? I know people that take it too far one direction or the other. Just ditches on both sides. <clears throat> Number three here, um, uh, most importantly, I would say we are, we are heirs with Christ and receive the same benefits that he does, okay? Everything that is promised to Christ is promised to us. We get a seat at the table, Right? We get an in-person relationship with God. 
We receive eternal blessing and sinless bliss, new bodies fit for paradise, right? We get a room in his kingdom. Um, and number four, uh, one last thing I want to point out about the doctrine of adoption. It's a, <clears throat> this, this is a one-time, non-repeatable blessing. Once you've been adopted, that's it, right? There's no returns. <clears throat> that being said, there's an eschatological element to this, okay, in which our adoption is not yet fully complete, uh, Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, how can we be adopted but not yet adopted? Right? All this means is that your bodily, the bodily resurrection of the elect on the last day will be the full manifestation of our adoption. Okay? You're, you are adopted sons of God. If you, are, if you are in Christ, you are adopted sons of God. And that adoption will reach its completeness when you receive your new bodies. Okay? And that's, I think that's why it's helpful to understand that Adam right, is the protological son of God, Israel is the typological son of God, and Christ is the eternal or the eschatological son of God. Okay? Now, to bring this all to a close, the catechism ends by saying that our mediator should be a man in order that we might have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, we've really already addressed this uh, about how you can come before the Lord with boldness, how he will not cast aside uh, his children, and we can find comfort in the heavenly seat of God. Um, one thing I did want to mention here, though, um, you know, we, a, a father a father is supposed to be someone who provides counsel, wisdom, love, discipline, encouragement, especially in the ways of the Lord, protection, right? A host of other things. And we live in a world where it is all too common to have fatherless homes. Uh, I, I, I did a little research, um, and the numbers are pretty unanimous. I, this is just according to the National Fatherhood uh, Initiative. Found online. 17.8 million kids, this is in the U.S., don't have a father in the home. It's roughly one in four. One in four. Okay? Our, and our country is the highest in the world, by the way. And that includes biological, step, and adoptive fathers. And some of the consequences of that, just so you know, include a four-time greater risk of poverty. Okay? So no inheritance left for the children. They're more likely to have behavior problems, right? Proverbs 13, 23, whoever spares the rod hates his son. <clears throat> Two times greater risk of infant mortality, so their protector is gone. More likely to go to prison, commit crimes. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Two times more likely to suffer obesity. Two times more likely to drop out of school. And as we all know, they're more likely to trend towards sodomy. Right? Our woke society, without a father there to encourage them, has no problem pushing them, these poor, confused kids, toward the LGBTQ community. Now, I'm not saying all of these things will happen to kids in these homes, but there's definitely a much higher chance. All this to say, living without a father is a plague. And too many people have to experience that. <clears throat> But for those who are in Christ, 
We have a Heavenly Father who loves and protects His people perfectly, loves His people more than any earthly father ever could, provides counsel and godly wisdom whenever they seek it, is available at all times when they need Him, will never forsake them, speaks to us in His Word, cares for us in the most profound ways, ways that we don't even understand, disciplines us in His grace, perfect wisdom. He provides for us in ways we haven't fully realized. I mean, I could, I could go on with this list. Whether you grew up without a father or not, or maybe you know people without a father and it's, it's affecting them. Our Heavenly Father, He bids us come through His Son that we might have comfort and access with boldness His throne of grace. That's what our catechism says. Our world gives the opposite wisdom and instruction. You say it's fine. It's not fine. Okay, that wraps up question 39. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you. All right, let me close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are a Father who cares for us, who provides for us, who has given us your only Son, to live and to die for us and to redeem your people, that you have chosen us and called us to be your people and adopted us as your children. You didn't have to, but you have given us your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we can be here on your Lord's Day to fellowship with your people and worship you as you so rightly deserve our great triune God. Father, be with us in our fellowship. I pray that it would be pleasing to you as would our worship of you this day. Be with Pastor Miller as he brings us your word, and may our hearts be attentive and open to your word, and we would receive it gladly. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.